Turn a copy of God's Word to 1 Peter chapter 5. I hope you uh, wore your steel-toed loafers because uh, this text is going to walk all over our toes. Uh, this has been a, a tough text for me personally this week and it's led to a lot of uh, repentance in my own life and um, maybe it will in all of ours. 1 Peter chapter 5, we're looking at 5 and 6, but we're going to read uh, the first six verses. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall indeed stand forever. Let's pray. Lord, help us, we pray, by your word and by your spirit. Give us understanding in this text, and Lord, I pray that uh, you would apply it to our lives by your spirit, that we would not be afraid to confess areas of our own sin and our own pride, even as we come to you in the humble and exalted name of Jesus. Amen. When uh, Adam and Eve tasted of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They did so largely because they wanted to have what God had. They wanted to be like God. They felt that God was holding out on them. When Joseph's brothers threw Joseph into the pit and later sold him into slavery, they did so because they scorned the visions and dreams that Joseph had had that they would one day all bow down to him. In the days of Saul and the young David, Saul initially rejoiced that God had provided salvation through this young shepherd boy who would um, slay the Goliath giant, uh, giant Goliath rather. But then his mind would change when they returned, returned to town and, and the crowd sang out, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And in the days of Nebuchadnezzar, emperor of Babylon, the whole known earth really, the Lord God made him dumb like the animals. After he looked out on top of his palace roof and and, and saw all that he had and said, Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? What are the, what's, what's the common thread through these stories? It's pride, right? In each one of these things, Adam and Eve in their pride thought they needed more. Uh, Joseph's brothers in their pride did not like the idea of being humbled um, beneath their youngest brother. Saul in his pride would not have that anyone was greater than he in his kingdom. And Nebuchadnezzar in his pride looked to his own hand for the might to get wealth and maintain his power. The thread of pride runs through really all all of the Old and New Testaments and the sins of all of God's people recorded. And if we're honest, it runs through our lives as well. 
This is a thread that continues to run through our thoughts and our actions and our words. And it's this topic that Peter addresses amongst his recipients of his letter this morning. First, in relationship to other believers within the community of faith. And then he's going to address it in verse 6 in our humility or pride towards the Lord. We're going to look at these two things, these two elements of, of our pride towards each other or humility towards each other and then our pride or humility towards God. And what we'll see is that when we are prideful, when we are prideful, it's going to short circuit the reason we're here. To love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors ourselves. That pride and love are like oil and water and cannot coexist. A few preliminary thoughts, though, before we get going. There is a way in which we use the word pride or proud that's not ungodly. We get in trouble with the English language here. Um, if I say I'm proud of my children, uh, there perhaps is a sinful way I could say that, but, but most of the time, I'm just really happy that they're my kids. You know, if, if when they become a believer, man, that makes me proud. What am I saying? That makes me happy. That makes me feel blessed. There's a way in which we use pride or, or being proud that, that isn't necessarily ungodly. What is in view here is an ungodly pride whose basic framework is that this world is about me. And not about you, and not about God. Certainly not God. The reality is, as Paul David Tripp likes to say, this world by its very nature was created for the glory of another. Not me, and not you. It was made for the glory of the Lord. He goes on to characterize this idea of pride as the idea of, it's my party and I will do what I want to. And if we're honest, if we really take an honest look at our own lives, this is really how we work, isn't it? My life really is about me. Did you know that it's not? That our own lives, are not, they're not about us. They're about God and His glory and how we can love Him and love others and serve them. And God's estimation of pride here is very clear, Right? God gives grace to the humble. What does He do to the proud? He resists them. He doesn't mess around here. He doesn't mince words. This is a a serious thing. And pride ultimately comes from our hearts. It's a heart condition. In reality, it's really the underlying heart condition from, from which all the symptoms of our individual sins, this is where they flow. Jesus in Mark chapter 7 says this, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Pride in its essence really is to seek to exalt self rather than God. This world was created for His glory, but we like to take all of it, or at least bits and pieces Along the way. The opposite, obviously, is humility, a a word that describes the humble attitude of a child when when Christ says you must become like a child in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. This is a lot what's going on. It's one who knows um, who he is in relationship to the world, especially to God. 
Humility comes from walking with the Lord in a, in a circumspect way and knowing that the world is bigger than our own concerns. It's a gift from the Lord. Humility comes from the Lord. It's not something we jump in ourselves. And it, it enables us to love God and to love others. Without it, we cannot follow God's command, especially His commands to love God and to love others. Why? Because when we are consumed with self, there is no room for anyone else. And we exist somewhere on this continuum pretty much all of our days. Peter's going to start here with a a special exhortation to the young. We see this in verse 5a. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. In the previous verses, we see that Peter has been speaking to uh, the elders, the ordained elders in a church, and how they are called to lead their congregation. And here, Peter has an exhortation, a command, a challenge uh, to the young people in a congregation that they would not only respect and listen to those who are older than they are, but especially the ordained leadership in their congregation. But why would he put this here? We know humility is something that normally grows with age. Because humility mostly grows through suffering. Have you seen this in your own life? You know, the problem with the young preacher is he hadn't been through enough suffering. And an older preacher has been through much more and will bring much more humility to the table because he's seen more and the Lord has put him in his place more often. And so Peter exhorts those who are young in the congregation to listen to and to follow and submit to those ordained elders in the congregation who are more advanced in years, who actually have seen a few things and know what it looks like to walk with Jesus we see this in our, in our lives, right? You can see how this works. Think about the young man who's just come out of college or technical school and he knows what's best when the, new guy, when the guy's been working for 50 years on the same product. Or, or our views of our parents, right? When you're in high school, they don't know anything. And in college, you think, well, they might know a few things. And then when that first kid rolls around, you think, I don't have a clue. Save me. What's happened? The parents haven't changed. The kids have. They've grown in humility through what? Through suffering. (laughs) We all know what that looks like. And so Peter then turns, not just, or rather just from specifically to the young men, to all of us. He makes that very clear. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You'll remember that Peter is writing to believers who are in Asia Minor, uh, who are in modern-day Turkey and are facing persecution. And I don't know about you, but, but suffering brings out often the worst in me, right? I don't, uh, that's when I find out just how prideful and sinful I am. My attitudes, my actions, my words, they, they quickly go south. And, and imagine a church where everybody's life is upside down. Everybody's losing their job. Everybody's being um, forsaken by their families. And when you get a bunch of sinners together, guess what happens? Sin. That's what happens. And so Peter exhorts them, chill out and exercise humility one to another. Forgive each other, love each other, serve each other. Humility is not what naturally clothes us, is it? What's our first reaction when something goes well? When we get the prize? You know, the fist pump? That's, that's our first reaction. 
The image here of clothing ourselves is that of changing our clothes, or to be technically accurate, of, of tying on, like you would tie on a toga or a scarf or a sash. Peter saying we must tie on intentionally humility. But perhaps we might look at this text and say, you know, I'm not proud. Man, I, I'm so humble. In fact, I'm so proud that I'm the most humble person I know. The statement might come from the fact that, that we think of a prideful person, we often think of someone who is a celebrity or constantly talking about themselves. Um, there is a gross way in which that we sin in this way, but, but I, think, I think in our everyday lives, pride is more subtle than that. Take, for instance, uh, a superiority complex. A superiority complex and an inferiority complex. Did you know that these really are both fueled by pride? A superiority complex is the exaggerated view of self. I'm great and you're not. That's the quintessential superiority complex. And that's obviously from pride. But, you know, the inferiority complex is the same way that I'm terrible and everybody else is great. You would think that's the opposite of pride. But we should not confuse that idea with humility. Because this is what happens when you're playing with someone on the tennis court and they throw their racket down. Or you're playing golf and, and, and you know, the putter just doesn't work well in the pond, does it? This is from an inferiority complex because this is what it says. It says that I'm better than that. I'm better than that. My own abilities, I'm better than that. I shouldn't be doing this poorly. Or a third category, our own insecurities. We all have insecurities. I know I do. When we look for the affirmation that we think we deserve from others, when we find our security in something other than Jesus, it sources pride. We're finding it in ourselves or what other think, others think about us. The reality is that our lives are called up in pride. Even our good works are tainted with pride. When we volunteer, help others, even teach or preach, there's often a little bit of us that wants others to see how well we've done. Does anyone make really good um, chicken noodle soup? You know, if you're making really good chicken noodle soup, you, you don't buy the Swanson's broth. You know, you don't buy it canned. You, you get the rotisserie chicken and you, you pick it all, the meat off, and you end up putting it in the pot and... And you, you, know, you boil it or whatever you do and put the herbs and the spices in. You can smell it in the house. It's just, oh, it's just glorious. And that's how we see our good works. But, but then if you, if you put just a drop of cyanide in the homemade soup, what does it do? It renders the whole thing poison. And such it is with our pride. So pride, what it does is it fundamentally robs us of the ability to obey the second greatest commandment, to love our neighbor as ourself. Just because it takes humility to treat others um, better than we treat ourselves, to think others is more significant than we think of ourselves. But the old line is true about humility. Humility is not so much thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less. Humility is not so much thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less of having lives that are less and less me-oriented. 
uh, we're coming on, on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, and, and Martin Luther, a great theologian, he had this line, and he, and he talked about being a navel-gazer. You know, if you look at your belly button, you can't see anything else. You can't see others, and you can't see God. Uh, and so often in our pride, this is what we do. We're navel-gazers. Navel-gazers. But pride shows up in our relationships, and I've, I've come up with three categories here on your, um, on your handout, and these are my categories. They're not neat and perfect, but this is kind of what I could come up with. And the first is, is pride shows itself in a selfish relationship, and this kind of relationship, one or both of the parties really isn't in it to help the other or to have a relationship of mutual um, uh, accountability and love. Everything is about them. Instead of looking for ways to serve the other party, family member, or friend, or neighbor, they are constantly expecting everyone to serve them. Indeed, there's often a delight in how bad things are going. Jealousy arises in this type of relationship because other people's success cannot be tolerated. Someone has a good day, I must bring them down because I'm tired of hearing about you. Let me tell you about me. This kind of prideful heart will always play the victim and never be able to rejoice with others when they excel. This is pride. And why is this so attractive to us? Because you know what? It's fun being the center of attention. It is fun being the center of attention, isn't it? I like it a lot. And that's in every one of our hearts. Now there are times you need help. That's not what I'm talking about. When we do have to focus on the needs of others, that's not what I'm talking about. Relationships of, of contempt. This is uh, when one person thinks he's so much better than the other. It can be obvious, but also very subtle. It often manifests itself in the inability to listen. That you can't listen. Either to counsel or just at all listen. Um, if you think that there's no one around you that knows better or has been through the same situation, then this is the category This person has a general contempt for others and thinks that the performance or abilities of others can never measure up. No one is quite able to do as well as this person or is often brought forth in a perfectionist spirit. Excellence is good and should be done to the glory of God. The perfectionism takes execution at the cost of relationships, the efforts of others, or the glory of God. This is seen in the inability to be able to accept help from others. I can't admit that I have a problem. I can't admit that I need help. And if this is the case, we never see our need for the church or the Lord. And the idea of community is a foreign concept. This sort of pride can be fostered towards individuals, groups, families, or even people, groups, and races. This is where the sin of racism comes from. And it is a sin. The sin of pride. But why is this so attractive to us? Because success is intoxicating. And one of the fastest ways to experience success is to talk about how bad everyone else is. This is relational pride. This is um, in relation to everyone else. If I'm better than others, then man, it feels good to be good. The third, though, is the poisoned relationship. And by that I mean those relationships that have reached the point that they are no longer defined by love at all or service or compassion, but indeed bitterness and lack of forgiveness and anger. Where does lack of forgiveness come from? Pride. 
The idea that we really don't have anything ourselves to be sorry for before God. The idea that everyone else's sins against me are greater than my sins against them and against God. Where does bitterness come from? Pride. The idea that I can control others by my hatred of them. Where does our anger come from? Most of it comes from pride, right? How dare they do that to me? Don't you know who I am? It also revolves around the principle of entitlement, not a government program, but the prideful heart says, I'm entitled to whatever I want. Then when we don't get it, we get angry. Why is this so attractive? Because we like to be in control. And these sorts of actions are the last effort to be in control. There's another category here, and that's humility towards God. And we see this in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Pride short-circuits the second greatest commandment, to love each other, because if we're so prideful, there's no room for anybody else. But it also short-circuits the greatest commandment, to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because there is in our heart a throne, you know, and, and who we want on it. God is on that throne if we're Christians, but in our pride we've got a spear trying to get him off and enthrone ourselves. There are obvious ways that this happens. The the sin, the prideful sin of an unbeliever is pride because they say, an unbeliever will say they have no need for salvation and don't deserve hell like the preacher of this church. I deserve hell. We all deserve hell. But an unbeliever's pride will not say that. He cannot because he's looking to his own efforts to save himself. But there are more subtle ways, right? The biggest one in my life is self-dependence. Do you know this mode? It's called cruise control. You know you can get on, in a lot of trouble on cruise control on the interstate, right? We get in a lot of trouble in our, in our lives on cruise control. But we're no longer living in utter dependence and reliance on the Lord, but operating in a way under our own strength as if we've got this thing. I'm very thankful that nothing good comes out of these situations. God constantly is bringing us into trials and discipline in our life to remind us this is not how we're meant to live. We see this in our finances, I think, too, when we don't tithe. God has given us money. Uh, He's given us the power and ability to get wealth. And when we keep all of it, rather than 90% of it, like He has commanded, that's that's pride and that's self-reliance. We take credit for God's gifts, um, have you ever been in a really desperate situation? Lord, help me. Lord, help, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Then it goes, well, man, that was, I did a great job. I know you have. I've done it too. And guess what? That's, that's not good. That's pride. Lack of thankfulness. We cannot be thankful to God when we've done it all ourselves. Um, the other ways too, but those are, those are the big ones that popped in my mind this week. What's the solution? Let me tell you, there's hope for us because the gospel is for sinners like you and me, prideful people like you and me. This is why Christ came. Okay? He died for prideful people like me. The first thing here is to agree with this statement in verse, B, first, excuse me, verse 5b. Uh, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Fundamentally, we have to agree that pride is sin. We have to call it what it is. And I have it in my life. 
Not that guy down the street, not my neighbor, not my friend or my enemy, but I have it in my life. We confess, Lord, I'm sorry. This is pride. And I don't want to be in a place like Pharaoh when you resisted him. Or like Satan in the wilderness when your Savior, when our Savior resisted him and beat him. Or Satan at the cross when he was, when he was defeated. But secondly, a godly perspective, 6a. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Um, we sang this fantastic hymn at the beginning of the service, How Great Thou Art. Um, when we talk about when we see this, when we see that, we're struck in awesome wonder of how great He is. If our view of God is this small, then our view of ourselves will be this big. But when we consider His majesty, dominion, power, and might, we are humbled when we are felled by the smallest of viruses, when we consider the heavens and all that He has made, the 300 sextillion stars that are out there, we are humbled. When we consider that His love is for wretches like you and me who can't even forgive petty offenses of others, we are humbled. And we are humbled ultimately at the example of Christ and His gospel. That we consider what He has done for us on the cross, that He would crush His Son for us. We who are prideful and arrogant, whose love for God and others wax and wane with how we're feeling that day and even what we've eaten, God sent His Son to die for me and for you. Pride is a heart problem and it needs a heart solution. And this solution is not found in a formula. It is found in a person. It is found in Christ. And being found in a human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And did the Father leave Him humiliated? No. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. And we find in 1 Peter 5-6 that at the last day, God will exalt us too. Not because we are worthy of it, but because we are, we are united to Christ by His grace, by His love, in His resurrection. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are prideful and yet we come as those who have been bathed by the blood of Jesus. Lord, I pray that You would cause us and help us to continually and constantly repent of our, our sin of pride and, and humble ourselves before You and others. Work in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, reminding us of Your love and Your might and Your power and Your dominion, even as we give thanks in our Savior's name. Amen.